If you enjoy this podcast, have you made a one-time donation or become a Patreon member? I ask because for all the episodes released so far, totaling millions of downloads and listens, this show has been supported by under 500 people in the last six years, an average of less than one per episode. Will you take today to make a difference for permaculture? Make a one-time donation online by going to paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast. If you prefer to send something in the mail, that address is the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Or, if you prefer, you can become an ongoing Patreon supporter and receive unique rewards for your monthly contribution. Find out more and sign up today by going to patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. How do we prepare for end of life? How do we honor the dead? How do we care for the living through our rites and rituals after a loved one passes? Michael Judd joins me to answer these questions as he shares the very personal story of his father's passing and how his family went about establishing a home cemetery. He helps us navigate what to do in order to create our own home burial site, how to clear it with local officials, laws, and regulations, how to provide access in perpetuity, and how to legally and properly inter the deceased. From there, we continue the conversation as we look at how we can prepare for our own end of life by creating an advanced directive, the options for green burial, and the need for all of us to start having honest and open conversations about death, regardless of our age. We then bring the episode to a close with a series of listener questions. Enjoy this conversation with Michael, and I'll join you again afterward. Then, Michael, since you've been a guest on the show before... I don't need your biography and background. I'll go ahead and point people to our earlier conversations if they'd like to find out more about you. But since it has been a while since we've spoken, would you like to give an update on you and your life since the publication of your book? Well, the biggest thing has been building our round wood, timber frame, circular straw bale home, uh, which took us about five years, a year in the design and planning and cutting and peeling, stacking the wood. Uh, We built the house from all the woods surrounding us. So it's mostly tulip poplar, cherry, black locust. Uh, It took about four years to build. It really kind of took over life there. Uh, So I've been very busy doing that. And not so much time in my food forests, which has been an interesting observation in that they've they've done beautifully. They've been very productive and little to no maintenance. I've had no time to put into them, and they flourished. You know, the two years leading up to building the house, you know, I put in the bones, the swales, the culture beds, the food forest patches, you know, planted everything up, and it really has proven itself to be resilient and work wonderfully. That wasn't my design or my intent, but uh, that's the way it rolled out. So I've been busy with that. Uh, we've, we've held two annual pawpaw festivals, now at our homestead, which have both been really amazing events. Big turnout, huge excitement and interest in the pawpaw. And then when folks come, you know, we, it's not just the pawpaw that's being celebrated. It's, you know, the food forest tours, the gardens, um, the straw bale house. We, we do an open house for the pawpaw festival. And the house is really a piece of art. It's uh, earthen floors throughout the whole house, all earthen interior plasters, traditional lime plasters on the outside, a thriving green roof, and passive cooling. We have gray water and compost toilet, 
it's all coded. Uh, it's it's a beauty, and uh, very grateful that it's mostly done. <laughs> you run through those experiences of the owner builder in putting your house together, but then after all those long years of work, you also get to reap the rewards of knowing it intimately as well as having been such a close part of that construction and getting to enjoy it then into the future. And yes, and it's really easy to live in. It was not easy to build, but it's easy to live in because the design was there up front, like the food forest, in the sense that for heating our house, our house, we have a loft, and I think with the loft, the house is about 1,300 square feet. And we heat the whole house with a finished design masonry stove and it, you only fire it at the most every 12 hours you know one armful of wood and that heat relays through and heats the whole house beautifully so the amount of energy input and work for heating the house is minimal and then the house stays beautifully cool in the summer largely due to the living roof which blocks uh, the heat gain through the roof which is where most homes gain heat and then thick walls uh, also keep it cool and then the humidity levels in the house are almost non-existent when it's very humid. You know, we're in the mid-Atlantic here. It's, it's tropical in the summertime. Um, but when you walk into the earthen house, all of the plasters on the wall and all of the earth in the house helps absorb excess humidity and releases and holds and releases and balances the interior environment to where it feels wonderful in there. So it's the opposite of having a you know, cold, blowing air conditioning on you or, or heat really flying at you. It's very comfortable and very easy uh, to live in now. You're not too far away from me. I'll have to come down sometime, do a video tour of your house, and we can have a longer conversation about what it was like to build your home, and we can share some of these ideas and technologies with folks. I'd love that. I'd love it. But with that, the reason that I have you here today is to talk about natural burials and establishing one's own family graveyard or community graveyard. And my understanding is that that comes from your personal experiences with your father, who I regret to hear had passed, having gotten to meet him when I was down and did our first interview together. He and I had quite a an engaging conversation over lunch. I remember that. I was thinking about that. It was about four years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, four years ago, my dad got diagnosed with mesothelioma. He'd had asbestos exposure when he was in the Navy. He was in submarines. And it caught up to him after all these years. And he lived for, with that mesothelioma for 18 months, which is quite a long time. And to show what an amazing being he is, he said that that last year of his life was one of the best he ever had. And even though his body deteriorated, his, his soul and his eyes, they shone beautifully. It was quite an amazing time for our whole family to be together and to be around him. And he was so positive and taught us so much in his process of dying that has really guided my understanding of death and life hugely. And during this time, we'd been talking with hospice. At a certain point, and they brought us a sheet of paper that you know had all the you know, sort of the considerations for joining hospice. And at the very back of the sheet, on the bottom, it said that you know home burial is a possibility and an option. And that brought the conversation for our family. I still remember us, you know, in the kitchen, my dad included, 
in the kitchen talking about the idea of creating you know a home cemetery we have we have about 25 acres of woodland here in frederick maryland but uh, i'll get to it but you don't need very much land to be able to do a home cemetery and you know so we all had to kind of be on the same page with it uh, my brother and my sister and my mom all of us in the immediate family and of course my dad and they said yes let's explore it let's let's learn you know what it takes to do this and so you know i took it up this was something i was leading and i was expecting to find all kinds of challenges in doing it so first i call the health department and they say well we'll come on out and we'll talk to you and they came out and they wanted to see the proposed area uh, so we'd, we'd kind of select an area off the sort of zone one, zone two area around the house, just going into the woods where the, the tree cover was, was, was light. And so we chose about a quarter acre there just on our own saying, okay, well, this looks like a good area. So the health department came out and said, okay, you're 100 foot from your well. You're 100 foot from, you know, a riparian zone, creek or stream. And then he's like, he's like, you're fine. As far as we care, the health department, you're fine. So that was that, and I was amazed. I was like, okay, well, then, you know, what do I do next? The next step was getting a surveyor, calling up a local surveyor and saying, you know, I would like to create a plat that delineates this area that we want to create a home cemetery in. So they came out and, you know, they staked it and went and drew up the plat and then also created an easement, you know, an access from the existing driveway. It's already there. So the plat then was registered with uh, the permit office downtown. And along with that plat being submitted, uh, there was a write-up that just kind of explained. Now, we had a lawyer write it up, but you do not have to have a lawyer write it up. And it really, it's just explaining that this plat is a home cemetery that will always have access regardless of who buys the land in the future. This will always have access to the, to the family people related to those who were buried there and that was it i couldn't believe it that that was it nobody else was you know coming around and checking on what we were doing with the site you know nobody dictated how deep we were supposed to dig the graves i mean it was surprisingly easy now a lot of times when i would call the health department or the permit office they would say, uh, let us check, you know, because they didn't, they have not had the experience of creating, you know, home cemeteries, you know, in the last 40, 50 years. So they would, they would go and check and get back to me and say, yeah, yes, you can. And, you know, I knew I could, but I had to wait for everyone to go through the process of figuring and finding that out because it's not been done. So that was kind of the forethought part in getting the land and getting the green burial site, the home burial site sort of legally registered and ready for, you know, for whomever's to come. And a quarter acre can fit a lot of people. And I think uh, the, the, the only cost we had was for the surveyor, which was maybe $1,500, $2,000. And that was the one-time cost for potentially you know, 30, 40 burials that will take place on this lot. So you do the math, that's, that's pretty cheap compared to you know conventional burials these days so that was the outline and very surprisingly easy now is that simplicity of this process as a result of your local rules and regulations or in your research for this have you found similar kind of structures elsewhere yes now what most people do not know and why i've begun to you know hold talks 
about natural burial. Natural burial is kind of an overarching term for green burial, for a home burial. Um, they kind of they kind of fall under natural burial as a, as a natural way. So, generally speaking, I think all states in the United States, you are allowed to keep your loved ones at home. You know, after they die. You know, there's there's no law saying that you have to remove somebody who's you know at your home. I mean, unless there's circumstances, you know, dubious death or contagious disease, you are allowed to keep your loved ones at home um, before burial. Then I think almost all states, excluding a small handful, and I can tell you what those are, you are allowed to have home burials and you are allowed to act as your own funeral director. So that's huge. You do not need to be involving or paying anybody in the process of burying your loved ones. And so here are the states that do require a funeral director, and that's uh, Alabama, Connecticut, Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, Nebraska, New Jersey, and New York. Now, if you live in one of those states, it's still worthwhile learning you know, what restrictions apply because there might still be ways to work in and out of that system. Now, I also read somewhere that I think all funeral homes are required to accept any casket that you bring. Now, no one's going to be there to tell you that, but so you could make your own willow, your own, you know, sawn lumbered casket, something with low impact. And if you are going to have a, a conventional burial through a funeral home, you can bring your own casket and they have to accept it. And that right there is a huge savings, both economic and environmental. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But yeah, most states, though most people don't know about it, and it's not practiced very much, you can have home burial. You can act as your own funeral director. A great resource for looking up all kinds of information about home burial and laws, regulations, is the National Home Funeral Alliance. They're at homefuneralalliance.org. Wonderful nonprofit, really just about helping people realize that they can do this at home. And they have pamphlets and things to guide you through the steps and processes in doing it. So there's a, there's a lot of resources out there um, for doing this on your own at home. And then, of course, there's the other category of green burial, which usually is you know at a, at a green burial cemetery or a hybrid cemetery. That's now allowing green burial. And we can talk more about that as well. But I'd like to also cover the process that we went through in caring for my father and burying my father. I'd certainly like to hear more about that because when you reached out to me to want to talk more about this topic, what came to mind is that as we practice permaculture as a system of holistic design, that, you know, we started in the landscape for so long and that's what bill brought out into the world it's what he and david were writing about but as we begin to apply this more broadly to creating permanent civilization permanent culture that we need to be doing more planning about our entire life our entire society and in doing so to be thinking about these rituals of birth as well as death and that if we're going to be doing so to be designing for end of life, to be able to hold the dying and care for the family afterwards. And that's where I would really like to hear more about your story and what you went through because it's such a personal experience. I think it's definitely a part of any design. It should be. It's an inevitable part 
of our lives and our environment. And I'm surprised how much it's not talked about. You know, I don't know how many PDCs I've been a part of or been around. And I could not really remember once anybody talking about designing space or process for burial, which I think is kind of a, kind of a huge oversight in, in planning. And it's kind of ironic, you know, for birth, we do so much. I mean, how many, how many pre-visits and how, how many, you know, preparations go through someone, you know, being ready to be born. Whereas, you know, the other inevitability in life is that you're going to die. And there's really no conversation. There's no planning. And I think that's also why the funeral industry has boomed in the last 60, 70 years, because it's, it's gaining by the default of people having not a plan in place. Because you don't want to have to think about these things, you know, when somebody dies. You're, you're, not, in the, you're not in the right mental state to make clear decisions, so you just hand it off. And, and you hand off a lot. You hand off time and process, ritual that help with grieving. And then you spend a lot of money and you add to environmental toxic loads through the processes of, of conventional funeral homes. So I think anybody, a permaculturist or anyone who just has a love for the planet and the environment, should be having this conversation, should be looking at planning and thinking about and I'll talk about cremation later, but cremation has a huge footprint as well. This really needs to be thought about if you care about the environment, you care about your loved ones. You know, this is this is really critical. Anyway, I'll share my story um, in, in hopes that maybe it shines some light on on one way it can be done. So, as I said, my my father, a very strong soul, embraced his death and really shown through his last days it was pretty amazing and he had hospice care he was at home and you know he died early in the morning in february two and a half years ago and we were all there and we we've been planning for it but as much as you plan it's still hard to to begin you know knowing what to do we had been reading a resource guide by Crossings is another nonprofit that really focuses on home funeral care. So caring for your loved ones at home. Not, it's not necessarily about burial. It's about how do you care for the body and the loved one. How do you prepare space and hold space you know, during uh, you know, the two or three days after somebody dies? So I really recommend checking them out. They're at crossings.net. So we've been reading that and, you know, reading about setting up the space. And even so, um, the morning of, um, I reached out to a friend of mine, a very spiritually centered woman in, in our lives, and asked her to come help. So she did. And that was enormous help to us. You know, sometimes, sometimes folks that do this are, are called death doulas. And there's actually training for becoming a death doula in helping people in this time of transition with loved ones. And it's really quite simple, but it's helpful to have somebody who's a little bit more clear in guiding the process. So my father died here at home, and you know, we moved him into our living room. And some of us were wanting to be with him and to wash his body to change his clothes, you know, to put a beautiful quilt over him, you know, to set up the space with candles and pictures, rose water, you know, just kind of creating a really sort of sacred, peaceful space around him and for us. Some of us weren't comfortable doing that. Some of us went out and started digging the grave. 
And that was a huge process and help for some people. And then others, you know, just wanted to, you know, make food in the kitchen. So it was really, it was helpful that there was, you know, that there was so many different things to do because I've learned through this that ritual, which I used to think was something, you know, you had to, it's complicated or you had to learn something special culturally. And what it means to me now is just doing anything that helps you process. In our case, you know, grief. And, you know, any little thing we were doing was helping us through our process. So throughout the morning, you know, we, we washed and dressed and, and you know, some of us sat with my dad. And we kept that space for three days. We sat and stayed with my dad for three days. Now, I had heard and read many cultures, you know, say that they, they wait three days until they bury somebody. And then there's a transition period you know, for the soul. And I was like, oh, okay, I mean, that sounds, you know, plausible. Uh, but I got to actually experience that being so, where, you, you know, you could see the transition of my father shifting and changing to where I would not have been comfortable burying him until the third day. On the third day, he was gone. He was clear and felt. And then it was a comfortable time, you know, to bury him. But, you know, I, I juxtapose that against what, what normally happens. People get afraid. You know, somebody dies and think they have to do something immediately. They think they have to call somebody, the funeral director, the doctor, hospital, something. 911, I don't know. People just, they just kind of, they don't sit with that. And I think that's a huge loss. You know, the body, the funeral home usually comes and whisks, you know, the body away within a couple hours of dying. When you left with an empty home and, and that body, that, that life, that loved one of yours is still in transition, but now it's in a cooler, you know, maybe it's getting filled with embalming fluid. You know, it's not in loving hands. Uh, so I think it's very important, regardless of how you end up being buried, that having time at home with your loved one is hugely important for them and for you. Um, now, we also had a, a vigil which, again, is kind of, you know, I used to think was a big thing, a big term. Um, but really, it was just letting uh, letting everybody know that they were invited to come over to have a chance to say goodbye to my father and to support us as a family. And I think that was on the second night. And I mean, we definitely have some Irish blood in us, but uh, not something we practice culturally, but it, it certainly helped because there's a lot of whiskey flowing. And a lot of people showed up. It was wonderful. You know, there must have been 50, 60 people in our house. It was almost like, you know, one of our, one of our holiday parties. And my dad was, you know, there in the center of it all. And it gave an opportunity for other people to come and have time with him before he was buried. And that was really important. In a really comfortable, familiar you know, setting where we all got to enjoy being together and celebrate him in that way, which was which was, uh, you know, definitely not conventional, but I think that's what was great about it. And then um, on the third day, it was just, it was just our family. Uh, we didn't have anybody religious uh, come and help us with the process at all. So we, what I did after the, the, the grave was dug, and the grave was just dug probably about four feet. There was no um, code saying you had to do it this or that. So I guess people dug till you know they felt like they were done. And it wasn't very big. It was just big enough for his body. And what we, what I did is I created a very simple carrying board, which was a, a, a two-by-ten board, maybe um, five or six feet long. And I just put a 
I had screwed on a couple uh, two by twos underneath it so that it created you know, four handles. And we put my dad on that, and then we wrapped. We used my uh, leftover fabric from my sister's wedding dress, which was probably like 20 years ago. Beautiful uh, silk, and, and we just wrapped my father's body around the board so that they stayed, they, you know, kind of tied him to it. And then, you know, as a family, we, we gathered around him inside and we talked about him and what he meant to our lives. And, and then we, we carried him out, a little procession, up into the woods um, by the grave. And we just got uh, some rope and we just lowered the board and my father down into the bottom of the grave, pulled the ropes out, and again, uh, stood there in a circle, and mother read a poem, and, you know, those who wanted to speak spoke, and, and then, um, then we, then we just started filling in the grave. It was not an easy part, but it was wonderful that, you know, that we were all there, and, and his grandchildren, my nieces and nephews were there, from age four to you know, maybe 14. And this was their first experience of death and process. And, uh, it's, it was very healthy in the way that every, all of us were, were there and supporting each other and related to it. And then, um, then I kind of made a fire pit there beside my dad's grave and sat there with my uncles and cousins and my brother and sister and you know, drank whiskey and you know, I didn't want to leave, <laughs> but, you know, it just all that opportunity, you know, I just wanted every second, every minute I could to process. And we did it as much as we could, and, and I could still use more. And, and, you know, time time does still allow process to happen, but I'm just very grateful that, that, that we could do all of that without, without interference. And then one month later, my grandmother, my dad's mother, died. And she was waiting for him to go. And so then, there we go again. We did the, the whole process again and buried her next to him. So you know, right off, we, we buried two of our loved ones um, right here on our land. And you know, we'll all, hopefully we'll all be buried there. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good feeling. And I, you know, my father, my grandmother being right there, you know, I go by that every day. And I get to just think about them. We reminded them in a good way. And we made it beautiful in the woods. We created a really nice stone line path going in. We created a couple small terraces out of you know, Pennsylvania stone, local stone. For the markers, we just used like a boulder that I had engraved for my grandmother. And we put a bird bath. She loved birds. So, you know, we put a bird bath there for her marker. You know, we, we, a friend of ours makes these beautiful clay bells that we hung on some black locust posts so that you can ring them as you come and go out of the space. And it's just surrounded by spice bush. It's just this magical little space also be, you know, to go and be peaceful in yourself as well as have an opportunity to go and have a conversation or just, you know, I go in there sometimes and you know, start talking to my dad. It just creates a nice space for that. How did this experience, and I understand that you had a good relationship with your father, that this was someone who you were close to, so I'm sure that it had a serious impact on you when he passed, but how did this burial experience, this ritual that you engaged in, how did that feel compared to other funerals and burials that you've been to? 
It is very, very different. You know, the other funerals I've been to, you go to the funeral home where they have a chapel in there. Oftentimes the body is there on view. It's been embalmed and covered in makeup and just looks weird, man. It looks weird. It's kind of freaky. And it's nice that people are getting together, but I don't know. There just seems to be a lack of opportunity for, for, for healthy grieving and process. I mean, it's not easy. And I know that we have a unique opportunity in family and strength that has allowed us to do this. And I understand that uh, most, a lot of families do not have that internal strength to do this. Uh, but there are other options. There are, you know, hybrid options for, you know, for, for, for doing this. You know, ours was kind of ideal and, you know, full on. And I think there's, there's different sides to it, the difference. You know, there's, there's the emotional side and then there's the environmental side as well. You know, they're both hugely important. And when you have a conventional burial, you're using a huge amount of resources, you know, as your last play on the planet. Yeah, I think I read recently, it says, why should your green consciousness end when your life does? And that's interesting, you know, and I think a lot of people who do care about the environment but are not planning, when they die, their family members are not, have that same sort of environmental consciousness. They're going to make decisions. You're going to say, okay, well, let's, uh, let's cremate, uh, which has a huge impact. Cremation, you, know, you have to be burned at, you know, 1,800 degrees for at least an hour. Um, so you're talking a huge, you know, resource of energy pool. And then you're off-gassing mercury and metals and all kinds of chemicals into the environment. So, you know, you're creating a huge, you know, footprint in cremation. And I think people, a lot of people think, oh, well, that's going to be, going to be, you know, less of an environmental impact. And it might be a little bit less, but it's still intense. So, I, you know, I want to put it out there. People are thinking about cremation that is still an environmental impact compared to doing a natural, you know, burial and then a lot of people are cremated in coffins. So you get put in this hardwood coffin, and then they burn you in that coffin. You know, I think a lot of times the funeral homes are just looking for anything they can add into it, the price of the funeral, which adds up a lot. You know, we're talking ten plus thousand dollars for a conventional funeral. Um, I know cremation's a lot cheaper. Cremation could be more around a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars. So you're saving money. But most people that are getting conventional burials um, and I've got some really interesting stats here just from the US you know in the US every year I think something like three and a half million people die and you know most all of those are getting conventionally buried and within just one year one year just in the US 800,000 gallons of embalming fluid are put into the earth 30 million board feet of hardwoods that's the equivalent of four million acres of wood and it would that's enough wood to build four and a half million million single family homes man this is just one year this is one year one country 180,000 pounds of steel is used in the um, the caskets that's enough to build over 200 empire state buildings again this is just one year and then now, in conventional burials, what they do is they bury you in the casket, and then they put an inverted concrete vault over the casket. Now, they do this so that the ground won't slump and the lawnmowers will have problems, right? And these are huge, you know, structures of concrete. I've seen them. And in the U.S. alone, 6 billion tons of concrete 
is used, and and that's enough to pave a sidewalk to the moon. <laughs> I mean, it's insane. I mean, that's that is so much resource that is going into and chemicals that are going into bearing. So. If you are not planning ahead, if you have not clearly stated and written your your wishes for when you die, then you will be, you know, adding to this. It's probably guaranteed. If you don't have a plan in place, then this is probably what is going to be your path. You'll be pulling resources as your last act. And this is one of the things that you and I talked about as part of this long-term planning as a permaculture practitioner, or really anyone is that while we're cognizant of these ideas that we should be putting together our plans early, once we know what it is that we want to do from where we want to be buried to how we want to be buried or to be handled at the end of life. And there was something that you had mentioned in our conversation setting up this interview about an advanced directive. Is that something you could speak more about? Absolutely. And it's a great place to start because, you know, all this sounds groovy, but then people are like, well, how do I get this conversation started? And it's not an easy conversation to have with a lot of people, even if you're open-minded, you know, and you're, you're wanting to, you know, get your parents to, you know, begin considering this, your grandparents. Really, anybody who's 18 years of older should be uh, working on having something written. And the rights, you know, when you die, you still have the first rights. If you have something written, you have first rights in, in what happens after you die. Then if you don't, it goes to, you know, the next kin. But you still have the first rights. Now, an advanced directive is a legal document, I think, in almost all states. That's actually very common. A lot of doctor's offices or hospitals, you know, have those. And, and it really, it's very basic, but it states, you know, what happens if you're on life support? You know, do you want, you know, to have the plug pulled, you know, under ABC circumstances? So it's kind of a, a very simple document that takes the weight off of somebody else, your loved ones, making a decision for you in the case that you're you know, unconscious or in a coma. There's a project, a nonprofit in Florida called Aging with Dignity. I think it's uh, agingwithdignity.org. And they have created a, an advanced directive called Five Wishes. Now, it's also legally binding, I think, in almost all states. There might be four or five where five wishes is not legally binding. But it's a wonderful document. You can download it for free from their site or pay a couple bucks and, and they'll, they'll mail it to you. And it's an advanced directive, but with a lot, it's, it's a, like a holistic one in the sense that it, it asks detailed questions. You know, what kind of environment do you want to have around you when you die? Um, you know, how do you want to be buried? You know, under what circumstances? as well as your medical choices, you know, if you are not capable of making them. So it, it really kind of clearly states your wishes and intentions for around your passing. And I think this is potentially even more important for your loved ones than it is for yourself because you're taking the weight off of them for having to make very hard decisions for you. So I think it's critical that everybody does this for their loved ones, for themselves and for their loved ones. And it's quite simple document, and it's also a nice way to begin a conversation. So what uh, Aging with Dignity suggests is that you fill it out yourself, fill one out yourself, get familiar with it, then take, you know, then take, take it to your, your loved ones, your parents, whoever, and you'll have a good starting place for a conversation. I think most people are open to planning. Even if they're not really comfortable talking about death, they, you know, they might be open to just kind of planning. 
but the five wishes adds a little bit more in so that you can maybe get the conversation open a little more. And then I find in talking about death, which I do a lot now because I see the need for us culturally to be having the conversation uh, and whatever that conversation is, you know, I don't, I don't try to dictate what it's going to be, but just let's talk about it. Let's open that up, shake ourselves loose a little bit. It's inevitable for all of us. So the five wishes is a, is a nice, easy way to begin that process uh, in conversations. So highly recommend getting that. I, I buy them by the box. You know, you can get like 25 for 25 bucks, and then I, I, I give them to people. You know, I'll buy another box and you know, try to keep spreading the small awareness. As that gets the word out there, it becomes more of a common part of our practices, and that even though you may give that to someone who doesn't use it, that they can take that as an opportunity to speak with someone else about what they're learning about these end-of-life practices? Yeah, and when I hold talks, when I do public talks about uh, natural burial, they're, they're very well attended, uh, but they're very well attended by people in their 60s and their 70s, you know, maybe a younger person here and there, and I think that's too bad. Uh, I mean, hopefully we'll, we will all live into you know, an old age, but a lot of us will not. And I think, you know, not, you know, sort of preparing for it now is erroneous and really kind of puts a lot of weight on your loved ones and on the environment. So if you're 18, you're 20, you're 25, you feel healthy, strong, death isn't on your radar, you still should be, you know, making these small efforts because these small efforts can make a huge difference in the advent, you know, well, <laughs> inevitable, uh, you're going to death. So... Please don't discredit this because you, you don't see yourself as a candidate because <laughs> you are. There are two other notes that I have um, from when we were putting our interview together that I wanted to make sure that we covered. One of those was death cafes and the other was green burials. You can take either one that you'd like and go ahead and start with it. We'll make sure that we hit both of those. So death cafes, I believe, was begun in the UK and England. And it's a very simple gathering that's held all over the world and all over the country you can probably go to you know death cafes website and see where um, these cafes are being held uh, we've had them held locally at our, our college and i went and it was it was in a large atrium and there were you know maybe a dozen large round tables and you just came in and you sat down and Whoever was at the table, people you, you hadn't met usually, and the idea, and they had, you know, they had uh, pastries and coffee and tea for you, and then the concept is that you just talk about, you know, you talk about whatever you want to talk about. It's a conversation about death and dying process, and it's beautiful in the sense that you know everybody that's there is wanting to talk in some aspect about about death and dying. And it just creates the space for it. It's so simple and so beautiful, and yet really kind of amazing, you know, just to be with other people who are aware and, you know, wanting to talk and further the conversation and learn from each other and listen to each other. It's so simple, and yet it was, it's so powerful. And, and, and it's a huge success, Death Cafes, I think, just because it is creating opportunity for us to talk about it. So look for those opportunities. Or maybe potentially sponsor one. You, know, you, can, you can sponsor one yourself, put it together in your region. And that's another great way to, you know, to help this movement happen culturally. And then, of course, you can add in information. You know, when I was there, I, I shared 
you know, our process of doing home burial. People are like, wow, I didn't know you could do that. And so it's another, another opportunity to, to share options with folks. So that's Death Cafe's Green Burial. There's a Green Burial Council. This is a national certifying um, organization that works with existing cemeteries and new green cemeteries. So a lot of times, uh, a lot of the options now for, for green burial are hybrids, which means that a conventional cemetery has allocated a certain area to green burial. Now, green burial, now the Green Burial Council also has, you know, to be certified, you have to meet certain requirements. And number one is you, you don't use embalming fluid with, you know, with toxic chemicals in it. Interestingly enough, they, they developed an embalming fluid made out of essential oils, you know, that's non-toxic. Uh, I feel like you still need to go that route. I didn't mention earlier, I should throw in there, that one of the ways that we were able to keep my father and my grandmother at home for three days was dry ice. So dry ice keeps the body cold and somewhat preserved, as does embalming fluid. So dry ice is usually locally available, and um, it's it's quite easy and simple to use. And that that kept the body probably decomposing more inside. So that's one of the key ingredients to, you know, keeping somebody at home after they transitioned is dry ice. So in the green burial, you can't use any kind of casket that has exotic woods, uh, metals. Uh, you, you can a shroud. We wrapped my grandmother in a quilt, her favorite quilt, and buried her in a quilt. Um, but there's actually, interestingly, a uh, large market out there for green caskets, you know, things made out of woven willow. Or another friends of ours, you know, use some locally sawn uh, milled wood to build you know, a little poplar casket for their loved one. So that's a requirement for the green burials. You know, you have to have some kind of natural, very easily biodegradable casket. Cardboard caskets are actually quite popular as well. And this is nice cardboard that you can paint and you can draw on. It gives another opportunity for loved ones to do something and to offer and celebrate their love for that person, painting it, which is kind of cool. I've seen some cool images of that. So you, and, and then you cannot have a concrete um, you know, liner put over your grave as part of green burial. And I think that's the main tenements. Oh, you can't have like a traditional headstone because the idea is that you're also preserving the environment to look as natural as possible and so you know local stones are often used probably engrave a stone or have a flat stone on the ground engraved so you're not you're not uh, marring the, the look of the place so there's hybrid cemeteries and then there's um, conservation cemeteries conservation cemeteries is like their highest certification standard where as agreements that you're going to have a conservation cemetery green cemetery is that you're going to do plantings as well. So you're going to have either an allocated area that's for you know reforestation, or maybe you will, I've heard of people, green cemeteries having areas where people are buried, and then when one section is filled, they'll start to plant over that section, and then they'll move on to the next section. So it's using burial you know, as a segue into reforestation and conservation, which is great. It has to follow each other if you're going to do conservation, green burial. And interestingly enough, I am I'm working with a couple of friends in exploring, creating a green cemetery here in Maryland where we do not have one. 
Uh, I think there's a hybrid option in Maryland. That's it. They are popping up, and there's a couple in Pennsylvania. There's one near Pittsburgh, Penn Forest, North Carolina. There's a permaculture one. What's the name of that place, Scott? That's uh, Sparkroot Farm. Sparkroot Farm. Yeah, they're on Instagram, too. They, they're doing really amazing cultural work and permaculture. And then there's uh, Washington State, uh, Herland. I've seen their advertising in the permaculture magazines that they're advertising their, their uh, green burial on their site, which I think is really interesting because a lot of uh, permaculturists and people who are looking to, you know, to, you know, sort of live uh, regeneratively are trying to figure out how to do it economically. You know, some people are doing bed and breakfasts. You know, it's like it's not easy to, you know, sort of set yourself up on a piece of land and stay on the land and make your income from the land. And I think adding an element of green burial to your, you know, your homestead is a very economically practical way to fund living and staying on the land. You know, it's one income stream. Of course, have diversity of income streams, but I don't think it's one that's considered enough. And I hear, I hear, and I've met other people, you know, who do different green burial aspects on their properties as a way of, of their living. And another thing I didn't throw out there is that green burial is very inexpensive. Even if you're paying, you know, to be buried in a green burial site, you're paying maybe $1,500, maybe up to 3000 total. So the cost is, is considerably less to be you know, buried in a green burial site as well. So that's a, you know, environmental and, and economic benefit there. So... Green Burial Council has uh, an informative website and a lot of information about that. And we're exploring um, within our own county, you know, the regulations. And so far, we're not really finding any troubles. I've been talking to the permit office, and we're actually allowed, surprisingly allowed, to have cemeteries on R1, which is residential, like suburbia. If you live in suburbia, you potentially could have a, a cemetery. I found that interesting. Agland, of course, and then you know there's RC, which is like a religious, already an existing church or a nonprofit. So almost all statuses for us, and it's probably going to vary site to site. And the process around here is that it has to go through a review through the permit office to make sure that it's all groovy, and then it has to go through a public review where it will be posted that this is going to be a cemetery site, and there's there's a certain amount of time that anybody who has concern can speak up. And so that's where you kind of are rolling the dice to see if in, in Baltimore County next to us, there was an attempt to create a green cemetery and the neighbors rose, you know, made a stink and, um, you know, uneducated about the realities. They got scared. And so it wasn't able to happen. So the public does have a say in this. So, you know, choosing your land wisely in hopes that uh, you know, no one's going to rebuff it. Uh, but otherwise... It's pretty clear and straightforward. Now, there's another issue that the government, I think it's across the country, there's a perpetuity fund. It's set up, I think, since 97, where if you're going to start a new cemetery, you have to put a certain amount of money into this fund. You'll never see that money. It's either it's ten to $50,000, depending on how large the cemetery is going to be. And it makes sense. It's a perpetuity fund in case, you know, your entity, if you're a nonprofit or a business, you know, that started the cemetery dissolves. It's a fund to help preserve and maintain that space for all the people who would still want to come and visit their loved ones. Uh, but that can be, you know, that can be a crippling challenge economically up front. But there's another loophole that if there's an abandoned cemetery, uh, which there's lots of, then you don't need to put money into that perpetuity fund 
Uh, you probably don't have to go through all the hoops and loops of worrying, you know, about the, you know, the review process because it already exists. And there's a lot of these. Interestingly enough, I met uh, a man yesterday in a conversation who lives near here who says he's got an old cemetery on his property and he's interested in having me come out and talk to him. And maybe we'll be able to sort of, you know, slide right into this process through that. Otherwise, it's definitely going to be, you know, some hop and scotch and to set up a green cemetery. But it's, it's important work. It's, it's, I mean, this, is, this affects lives in so many ways that I feel like it's, uh, it's, it's worth the efforts that any of us can put into it. And with the home burials that you're doing on your property, that is separate from a full commercial cemetery, so you did not need the perpetuity fund? Correct. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't didn't specify that. So the green burial, you know, that's kind of a public cemetery. It's a public institution. But no, on our home burial site, there is no perpetuity fund. The only thing that was required was the setbacks from water and the plat so that there is always an easement to access to it. So let's say our land is sold to somebody else. They will own the land where the cemetery is, but they cannot do anything with that section of it. And then we will always have legal access to come visit that space or come and bury more people there, you know, in perpetuity. And so that plat and that easement is just a separate legal construct that you have a deed for that kind of separates that land out a little from whoever happens to own the physical property in the future? Correct. So even if you think, you know, you're, you're not going to stay on the land you're on, you could still create your home cemetery there and, and, you know, have that space. And you do not need a lot of acreage. Uh, the only limitations in our area were the 100-foot setback from a well. Um, it, and if you're on city water, you know, if you're on some kind of, um, not sure city water, but if you're on some kind of, you know, piped-in water, then the setbacks are even less. And so I think you potentially could be creating a home cemetery on something, you know, as small as half an acre, potentially a third, maybe even a quarter if the spacing is right. So don't think that you need a large piece of property to do this because you will save a lot of money and get all these other benefits, you know, from, from creating this space, you know, even in a, in a, small, a small lot. And I think for anybody who's done any kind of construction or worked with agricultural regulations or anything like that, if you've looked up that coding, then you're familiar with these same kinds of offsets because you've probably encountered them, you know, if you went to build a barn that it has to be so many feet from a residential structure or what your setbacks are for fencing from a roadway, that it's those same kinds of considerations. It's just a matter of talking to the right people to know what those considerations are before you move forward with a project like this. Yeah, absolutely. And, th and that, that was the, from the permit office, that was their only thing was that uh, it had, it had construction setbacks, you know, which were 10 feet from, a, from the border, you know, so they were very minimal. Um, so the two steps I would take is I'd call the health department first and be patient because, you know, sometimes they're, they may not be accustomed to this, but they will have it somewhere in their laws. So call your health department, have them come out, look at the proposed site. And then, you know, if you get a green light from them, then you get a surveyor. Uh, you know, you, you can't call the permit office and say you want them to come look at the site. I don't think they're going to come out and look. They're not going to be interested other than filing it for you. So really, you kind of do the legwork on your own. You get the health department okay. Then you get a plat made. Then you register that plat. And that's it. At least it was for us. Now, it, it might vary state to state, even county to county. And it is one of those things, as you say, to be patient. I find very often, having done some policy work, that 
where we think rules and regulations may be is not where we'll find them. Uh, one example that comes to mind is with chickens that in one local city here in Pennsylvania, that chickens in the city were not under agricultural ordinances where we thought they would be, but rather were under nuisance ordinances because that's where they were disallowed. And so when someone's asked a question like this that they're not familiar with, that it may take some time and some research. And also for anybody who's interested in this, I recommend looking for your township or county codes online and do as much research as you can. Search for things like cemetery, funeral home, or anything like that that's related to death and dying, because then you might be able to forward that information onto whoever you're reaching out to and give them an opportunity to kind of speed up their research. Yeah, you, absolutely. And I think the, the Home Funeral Alliance and organizations like that will also have a lot of uh, resources for that. And yeah, in preparation um, for my grandmother dying, she was living in a retirement community, you know, kind of a, kind of a highbrow spot. And so, you know, we had to call them and say, look, this is what we're planning on doing because, so I, I didn't, I didn't go through one, one step. So when my father passed that morning, uh, the hospice nurse came out and, you know, confirmed that he had passed. And then she went back to the hospice doctor and he signed the death certificate and she brought that back. So my dad never had to go anywhere and, you know, no, no processing other than this nurse, you know, bringing the document back. And she left us with the death certificate. Now, the, fr the first page of the death certificate is signed by the doctor, time of death, da 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 da. Then the second page, I believe it's the second page, it's all written for a funeral director, which is which is kind of telling. But what you do is you you act as funeral director. You fill it in as the funeral director. Every time it says funeral director, you put in your name, uh, and you just fill out the second page. And then the third page is a transportation document. And again, it's saying funeral director, you know, has the right to move the body from A to B, da 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 da. And you just put your own name in there, and you need that document. Because I had, so we had to move my grandmother from her retirement community, you know, just down the road, up to our family home. And you know, in preparation for that, you know, we saw it coming. So we called up the retirement community, and we're like, "Look, this is what we're planning on doing. We want to give you guys a heads up. I know this is not, you know, at all what has ever been done. And you know, it took them a little while to digest it and to come to terms with it. And so that was helpful. And then you know. We began caring for my grandmother there, but then, you know, a friend had a Subaru, hatchback Subaru, and, you know, we wrapped her in the same way on a board, a very simple board, and a quilt, and, you know, as quickly and carefully as we could, you know, we carried her outside and put her in the back of the Subaru and, you know, drove her up to our home and placed her in the living room. So you are allowed to transport, you know, in most circumstances. I think you're even allowed to transport across state lines. I don't want to check on that, but I've heard plenty of stories of people, you know, driving loved ones up from Florida to Maryland or, you know, vice versa. And, and it might be an additional document, but if you're surprisingly, you can do this. You act as a funeral director. You take all those roles. And then, of course, you have to file those papers yourself within a short amount of time. But that's that's pretty basic as well. So uh, that was really the only major legal thing that we had to deal with. And it was very simple for us. Now... If your loved one dies at the hospital, this is also, and if you foresee that coming, you should start having a conversation with the hospital because they are not accustomed to having anybody interfere with their process, even though you are legally allowed to. 
So you need to really be clear up front that your intentions are that you know when your loved one dies in the hospital, that you are going to come take them, and you are going to put them in your car, and you are going to drive them home. And you want to you know set that up as much in advance as possible. They legally have to in most circumstances. They just may not know it. So you need to be patient, but you need to be persistent. You need to be clear and maybe have some documentation with you that helps support that. Otherwise, you know, they're going to they're gonna stick you down the morgue and, you know, they're going to run you through the conventional process. And, you know, I don't want that for any of my loved ones. I know that. So uh, it definitely, definitely do some legwork. Be prepared. These are not things you want to try and deal with when it's happening for the first time because you're emotionally, you know, tied up. You're, you're mentally not clear. So a little bit of legwork helps. Yeah, and having gone through some end-of-life planning myself with my own family this summer, I can say how much time and energy goes into that while you're dealing with someone who is ill and trying to take care of them as best you can, your family as best you can, and prepare for these next steps. So, yeah, definitely do that. And then, Michael, do you have time for a few listener questions before we draw this to a close and I ask you for your final thoughts? Sure, sure. Fire away from Jessica, and I think we covered some of this, but just to make sure we've got it all. She asked, what would be the process for acquiring land and establishing an eco-cemetery, such as zoning and land use laws? Uh, She's interested in creating a conservation type space, which you mentioned, uh, with room for reforestation and wildlife rehabilitation among the grave-based green spaces. Are there some organizations that are articulating into these areas already? Yeah, so the Green Burial Council um, definitely. Well, the Green Barrel Council has certifications that you have to meet, but I think even before that, in considering looking for land, uh, you'd want to, you know, talk to your, your permit office, uh, your health department and your permit office. You may have to get, you know, hydro testing, hydrological testing on the land to make sure that you don't have a high water table. So there, 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 might, there might need to be, you know, a step taken there. You want to make sure that, you know, you're not in a floodplain. The, the county's going to want to make sure that the land drains and isn't going to create a potential hazard. So I think, you know, that's one of the first main considerations. It doesn't really want to be too steep or hilly. You know, you want people to be able to enjoy it. A lot of these conservation green burial places, uh, cemeteries, are becoming parks. So the idea is that you come and you enjoy yourself, your, your time there. There's walking paths, there's benches, there's places to have picnics. You know, it's a place to come together, celebrate, you know, be with your loved ones in some essence in a, in a peaceful place. So it really kind of ties a lot of great things together when you're doing the conservation burial part of it. Um, but I think initially you need to make sure that your land is going to be suitable. And the permit office and the health department are probably your first starting bets there. You know, you, you have to have consideration for size, you know, how, how, how big an area, you know, based on, you know, how many, you know, economically, how's it going to work for you? There's certain things the county's going to want to make sure that there's room enough for people to park off street, you know, be able to turn around inside that space. Interestingly enough, I was talking to this gentleman yesterday who has the abandoned cemetery, and he's like, he considered it. He's like, I couldn't, couldn't see 200 people coming in for a funeral. And I said, well, you can create um, limitations yourself. You could say, okay, you know, if you want to be buried here, you know, we're going to have a limit of 50 people for your ceremony. And fair enough, you know, if you agree to all these things. So I think, I think you can also up front, you know, put in uh, the design and limitations for your site and your cemetery so that they really suit 
uh, your lifestyle and, and the space. Uh, so keep that in mind. That I think there's a lot of flexibility here and creativity. A great place in a website to look at is Penn Forest, P-E-N-N Forest. And they're there, Scott, uh, in your state. Uh, they're near Pittsburgh. And he's a wonderful guy who's really done a good job in setting up a conservation green burial cemetery. And he's got goats and bees there. He's creating, you know, these walking paths and his planting. He's really done a good job, and he's very generous in sharing his information and how he's done. I think he's a good model. Uh, I need to get up there and visit him here soon of how it can be done and even economically the planning for it as well. Yeah, it's, it's just to start researching and digging in and talking to your permit office, go in and sit with them and talk with them and, and see what has happened with other cemeteries being created in the area and learn from their processes as well. And then Linda, one of the Patreon supporters of the podcast, had recently run across an article from the New York Times about turning corpses into compost as part of the Urban Death Project. And one thing that she brought up in there is that the article didn't address was about scavengers. And that was one of the things that I had, especially when you said earlier about only digging, I guess you said about four feet deep. Are scavengers or anything like that a concern with this type of burial? I mean, I don't know anything that's going to dig four feet out around here. So, no, I, I, I've not heard of that really being a concern. I mean, maybe if you lived out where there was a bunch of coyotes or something, you didn't bury very deep, but um, you know, I, I don't think animals are going to dig that much. I think if that was really a concern, you could probably lay in some hardware cloth or you know, some chicken wire as a layer you know, above the, the buried person. But I think ideally you're burying as high up in the topsoil as possible, you know, where it's biologically and fungal rich. You know, the deeper you go into the subsoil, the less biological activity is there and, you know, the, the longer the decomposition process is going to take. So, you know, I, I was reading some regulations the other day in a lot of states, they only, you know, some states only, only need 18 inches above yourself or your casket or whatever. Um, you know, I think three feet is more the average. But it's not very much, surprisingly. You know, the six feet under thing, you know, maybe in New Mexico. I think New Mexico had was the only one that was like 72 inches. Maybe it's because they got coyotes out there. But, uh, you know, surprisingly, and that was one of the things I was surprised at. No one was coming out and looking at how deep we dug and all that. And You know, I think we maybe went four feet. You know, I think three feet would be fine and, and have some benefits to it. So uh, the second part, though, Linda's question there on the Urban Death Project. I'm glad she mentioned that. That is an awesome project that's uh, been underway maybe about two years now, headed by a woman, I think, out in Washington State, who is creating, she did a Kickstarter too, I think she raised like $100,000 for research involving universities. I think even North Carolina University is very involved with her. And it's basically creating these towers in urban settings. And the idea is that it's you, know, you go up to the top, you know, the top tower, and and there's a hole in the floor, and it's full of wood chips, you know, it's full of organic matter, and you lay your loved one, you know, with a natural biodegradable shroud on top of that, and then this tower, which I don't know how how tall it might be, you know, 20, 30 feet maybe or more, has this slow composting process as it goes down, and you know, more people are buried on the top, and it's just their bodies are going down through this composting layer over time in a very small space. So it's like this eco, you know, natural process of decomposition in an urban environment, which is great. And they're doing the research and testing, you know, for the possible chemical outcomes and, you know, how 
how can this be safe? And they've had, as far as I know, huge success. I don't know where it is in, in legal processing state by state, but they're very well organized. Uh, they, they've got funding. Um, I'm on their email list, so I keep getting updates, which is really, really fascinating to hear about. So it's really this kind of idea of home burial and, you know, for people who don't have land. So it's an awesome project that I, I would definitely check out. So, again, you know, if you're living in the city, you think, oh, I don't have any land to do this. There are other possibilities. And Kendra was wondering, do you have any information on how to remediate or work with existing graveyards because of all the chemicals and things that we might perceive as toxic within that environment? <laughs> That's a good one. I mean, traditional cemeteries are basically landfills, embalming chemicals and cement kind of this monoculture of, of headstones. And, you know, bioremediation, you know, fungi are our best bet. Working with mycelium to break down and convert toxins. You know, the, the fungi will actually convert toxins and chemicals into sugars. Not heavy metals. You can't convert heavy metals. Fungi will hold them, lock them up, but uh, they can't convert them. But I think a lot of the, the chemicals that are in the bombing fluid can probably be digested. So things that come to my mind are just incorporating as much organic matter on that site as possible, you know, wood chipping over the graves, you know, heavily and then strawing over that or something that maybe maybe is aesthetically acceptable and just trying to enrich that that soil biota and the, and the fungi and the breakdown to help manage those chemicals. You know, maybe doing some earthworks, you know, if you have a lot of water moving into the site, off-site, you know, maybe doing swales, swales slightly off-contour, you know, maybe move some of that, 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 that heavy-flowing water just off to the side and then capture it there. You know, try to reduce the amount of water flushing through that area comes to mind. You know, unfortunately, you know, in the concrete, I mean, it'll eventually break down, but, you know, it's kind of damage done right up front that's a little bit harder to ameliorate in hindsight but uh you know those two things come to mind is permaculture easy permaculture practices and the final question that we have is from terence and is a little bit more lighthearted. and he's wondering have you picked out an inscription for your own tombstone <laughs> i i should you know i've got my five wishes um i've got that very detailed you know i, I voiced my i think everyone obviously my family and my life knows what i want but the, the tombstone, I don't know, something about being, you know, a plantsman, you know, just something about my love of working with plants and systems. I don't know. It doesn't have to say much at all. Like my dad's stone, you know, just has his, his name, his um, birth date, and his day that he, he transitioned. So like I say with my grandmother, it's just a birdbath at this point. So, no, I haven't thought about that aspect of it, but I guess it's good to be clear about all these things to make it easy for, for those, you know, once you're, once you're gone. That's the idea. Now I'll think on that one. And if you do come to something, definitely let us know, and I can let Terrence hear what that is. <laughs> Put him at ease. All right. Yeah, I'll see what yeah. I can come up with. Hopefully I've got some time. We'll see. With everything that we've covered today in talking about making space for the dying and holding them, for the rituals that come with end of life and transitioning and all the different ways that we can approach care for the earth and the body and the community afterwards. Do you have anything else to share for this conversation today, Michael? Wow, I feel like we, we really put a lot out there. Uh, I think there's a lot of good resources to follow. I, I would say try not to be afraid 
of death and being around death. I've also found an amazing portal to explore, you know, the metaphysical, you know, aspects of being alive. I find death comparable to, you know, ceremony like ayahuasca and peyote and, you know, these openings into, you know, deeper understanding. You know, when you sit with death, you are entering space that is just an amazing place to learn and to grow. You know, to where I think, you know, if I feel like I really need an opportunity to, to do some real searching, then I'll, I'll, I'll be with death. You know, I'll, I'll go and be close to people who are dying. I'll be in that space. And it's a huge opportunity for growth. It's a great opportunity that, that, we're, that we're not using, we're squandering. So, you know, try not to be afraid of death and culturally we become that way. But try to look at it as an opportunity, a huge, wonderful opportunity that uh, can bring a lot to your life, ironically, by creating a close relationship with death. Well, thank you for that and everything else that you've shared with us today. And thank you for joining me for this conversation, Michael. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate you, man. And that was Michael Judd. Find out more about him at EcologiaDesign.com. You'll find a link to that, as well as to the organizations that he mentioned, in the resource section of the show notes. As I refer to early in this episode, I've spent a lot of this year considering and dealing with end-of-life care. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with Michael when he reached out to me about this subject. I see preparing for our end and including our loved ones in those conversations as early as possible, as essential to our work as permaculture practitioners, both as human beings with relationships with people who we love, but also because of the design that we practice, regardless of what level or degree you might take your design to. If your focus is primarily on farm and land, then setting aside a place to hold and honor the dead is essential. If your design work takes you beyond the landscape, then what ways can you start the conversation with family members, friends, and your community? Can you take the ideas presented here of home burial, of a three-day wake, as Michael held for his father, and apply them where you are? Or do you have different cultural hallmarks that mark the transition from life, just as they're your own for entering it? I don't know anyone for whom death and dying is an easy conversation, but it is one that we should be having, as designers, as friends, and as family members to help others honor their wishes, and so that we can be clear with our own. If you have thoughts on this, and would like to talk about them, or need some space for someone to listen as you seek closure, my door is always open. 717-827-6266, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next conversation is an episode guest hosted by David Bilbrey, where he speaks with the founder of Central Grazing Company about creating a holistic, regenerative lamb operation. Until then, spend each day taking care of Earth, yourself, and your community. <laughs>